0: Will you stand as you are able for the reading of this morning's scripture? This passage is from Acts, the second chapter, verses 22 through 41, and it is continuing Peter's sermon at Pentecost. You that are Israelites, listen to what I say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, you yourselves know. This man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One experience corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Fellow Israelites, I may say to you confidently of our ancestor David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, He knew that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would put one of his descendants on his throne. Foreseeing this, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, saying, He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh experience corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and and of that all of us are witnesses. "'Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God "'and having received from the Father "'the promise of the Holy Spirit, "'he has poured out this you see and hear. "'For David did not ascend into heaven, "'but he himself says, "'The Lord said to my Lord, "'Sit at my right hand "'until I make your enemies your footstools. "'Therefore let the entire house of Israel "'know with certainty That God has made him both Lord and Messiah this Jesus whom you crucified now when they heard this they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to other Apostles brothers what should we do Peter said to them repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this this generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, happy birthday, church. On Pentecost Sunday, which we recognize as the birthday of the church, uh, we have read almost the entire second chapter of the book of Acts, which I think is the most important chapter in the book of Acts. We refer to it oftentimes as the Acts of the Apostles. Of course, that's a misnomer. It is the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. And we've experienced that today. Those of you who have been in your classes, who have had our international friends, who have been with you to share their stories and their prayers, What a day it has been. It has been Pentecost at BUMC this whole weekend. Uh, The Congolese choir that will sing for us at the benediction uh, under the guidance of Isaac, they were with us last night, and they've been here for all four services, and we're so grateful to you. I'm going to ask the pastors who are a part of this uh, community today if you will stand. I believe we have several pastors who are here. Uh, If you will stand now. Oh, they're all pastoring. Oh, there's one. Okay, thank you. Yeah, bless you. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You may be seated. In Acts 2, the church actually started with 120 people. The charter members, according to Acts 1, included the original 12 apostles minus one, that's Judas, The women who had followed Jesus from Galilee, including Magdalene, Susanna, Joanna, and others, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Can you imagine having your mother as a part of the charter church? And his brothers, Jesus' brothers, who did not believe that their brother was the Messiah until the resurrection happened, and there was something about that that confirmed their suspicions. And so there are 120, chapter 1, verse 14 of Acts says that all of these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer, and that's an important line. I think the prelude to Pentecost and the prelude to spiritual power is right there. It's in the prayer of the church. The church was not born of a clever sermon. The church was born of a prayer meeting. It's also true after the event of Pentecost. What did they do after the Spirit fell? Well, Acts 2.42 says that the fourfold discipline of the church was this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's what we're doing, to the fellowship, koinonia, to the breaking of bread, that is to the sacraments, and to the prayers of the church. It was the great reformer Martin Luther who said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. It is the secret sauce of the saints of God. Among Jesus' last words, the risen Lord's last words before the ascension, he said to his friends, "Don't, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of my Father." Now, I would much prefer that it say, work for the promise of the Father, toil for the promise of the Father, and that's important. But that's not what he says. He says, wait for the promise. And when I read that, I think, oh no, anything but that, Lord. Opportunity waits for no person. That's the way I was programmed. But there are some things that you cannot do in your own energy. You simply have to wait. It's interesting. The Hebrew word for wait is it it is kaval, kaval. It's not an inert word. It doesn't mean don't do anything. It means literally to twist or to stretch. Kaval connotes the idea of the tension of enduring. It's like Isaiah 40: they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. When I was in Atlanta, Sherry and I were in Atlanta for 12 years on the east side of Atlanta in Liberia. We had a Liberian fellowship there with about 50 members, and they had a pastor. And about once a month, I noticed that the pastor used to call Together, what he called a tarry. That's a T A R R Y. It means to abide. Whenever they had a decision to make, or whenever they had a a task to tackle, or an illness that they were concerned about, they would call together a tarry, and the preacher wouldn't preach. There was no teaching, but they would gather together and be still and wait and pray. That's the prelude to power. In Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus promised, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the utter ends of the earth. That was the promise. And in Acts chapter 2, it actually happened. Like wind and fire, the Holy Spirit of God fell upon that tiny band, and Luke says they began to speak in other languages that they had not previously known as the Spirit gave them ability. But what's interesting to me on this day, on that Pentecost day, the disciples didn't have to go to the ends of the earth to bear witness because, of the, because the ends of the earth had come to them. There was in Jerusalem, says Acts, devout Jews from the world over who had come to celebrate Pentecost, and the roster includes no less than 15 different nationalities, which we called a few moments ago. This morning at Brentwood United Methodist Church, something similar has happened among us, but we don't just have 15 nations. We have at least 20 nations represented in the house today, and when I call your nation, if you are here, this is going to be like a a school class roll call. When I call your nation, you lift your hand and say, here. Burma? Burundi? The Congo? Yes. Eritrea? Ethiopia, India, Iraq, Kenya, Kurdistan, Laos, Mexico, Myanmar, Nigeria, the Philippines, Rwanda, Sri Lanka, Syria, Uganda, Oh, David Sibley is not in the house, no. (laughs) Venezuela, America. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The world is here. And more importantly, the Holy Spirit is here. And when the Spirit comes, the world gets smaller. And the mission gets bigger. (laughs) John Frame and I were coming back from Beirut, Lebanon, a couple of months ago, and the airlines we were flying has a new tagline for those who are international travelers, and I'll never forget it. It said simply this, it's only foreign if it's unfamiliar. Oh, I like that. It's only foreign if it's unfamiliar. And so, the Syrians that we met in Lebanon are no longer foreign because they're our friends. And when strangers become friends, the Holy Spirit is in the house. The world has come to Brentwood. And when that happens, the world gets smaller and the mission gets larger. But on this day, on that first Pentecost day, in spite of the diversity in the crowd, they all heard the gospel in their own tongue. They all heard the gospel in language they could understand, and that's a miracle of speech. Now, as a clergy person, I'm grateful, and I certainly want you to know that the first gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is, guess what? Preaching. It's preaching. It's communication. It's witness. Mr. Wesley called preaching an awakening experience. God forgive us, we've made it almost the opposite of that. Said Mr. Wesley, and I quote, it is certain that preaching the gospel to repentant sinners begets faith. It produces faith. It sustains and increases spiritual life in true believers. Preaching is a miracle of speech. Every time my mother hears me preach, she says, you're a miracle. (laughs) Amen. Acts 2 is actually a reversal of Genesis chapter 11. Do you know that story? I'm going to tell it to you. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 11, when the world still spoke one language, there was migration as early as Genesis 11. It's in the Bible. And the people began to migrate east of Eden to a place called Shinar, which is Mesopotamia. And when they got there, they put together a little building committee. Now, the Scripture doesn't say this, but you know it happened. They had a charge conference. The district superintendent was there. Even the bishop showed up. That's how we know they were Methodists. The building committee, stepped to the fore and made a proposal," and this was their proposal. It's in the Bible, "'Come, let us build a city whose tower reaches up into the heavens, so that we might make a name for ourselves.'" All in favor, aye. All opposed, nay. The motion passed, unanimous. So the people put on their hard hats, and they started construction. Meanwhile, God comes down from heaven to inspect the site, and the Scripture says that God was thoroughly distressed. He was vexed by what he saw. It wasn't the technology. The technology was perfect. The building materials were top shelf, but it was the purpose of the building that was too small that we might make a name for ourselves. And I don't have to tell you, when your goal in life becomes more self-centered than God-centered, the same thing always happens. There's a communication gap that arises. The language suddenly becomes incomprehensible. It's incoherent. It's unintelligible. We don't understand each other anymore. We develop what we call talking points so that we no longer have to listen to one another And speech becomes more of a weapon to demonize than a tool to reconcile. And we are polarized, we are scattered, and we are estranged. Welcome to Babel in the 21st century. (laughs) Even the word Babel in Hebrew, you know what it means? It means confused. But on the first Pentecost Day, something happened when the Spirit fell, and all of a sudden, the language became one again, and every person heard in their own dialect. And That's a miracle. That's a miracle of speech. Many of you know, we have students in our international community who are students at Overton High School. I was a graduate of Overton High School in 1978. We are facing our 40th reunion. You notice how I said that? We are facing now our 40th reunion in June. When I was a student at Overton, I went to school with a girl named Cindy Tillis. You may recognize the name. Her father's name was Mel. Mel Tillis received the National Medal of Arts in 2012 also a member of the Country Music Hall of Fame. What you may not know is that Mel Tillis suffered as a little boy from malaria, and though he recovered, it left him with this speech impediment so that whenever he talked, he stammered and stuttered. He just murdered the king's English when he talked. He died last year in November at 85 years of age, and someone showed me the program. Even the program at his funeral said, and I quote, in loving memory of Mel Tillis. So whenever he talked, you laughed. Whenever he, he spoke, people laughed. And, and then one day, he started singing. He put those stumbling words to music and the stuttering vanished. And he found his tongue, he found his voice. And something like that happened to the disciples at Pentecost. Something like that happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church. It's like you find your nerve. It's like you find your tongue. And you're empowered to go public with your faith in a way that people understand. I want you to notice in the Scripture the response of the crowd to what was happening. They were, says Luke, bewildered. The Greek word is interesting. It's ecstasis. It means you're blown away. It means you have no frame of reference for what you're witnessing. It means you're shocked. They're amazed. And they're amazed not only by what they hear, but by who they hear speaking. In fact, they raise the question. It is a rhetorical question. Are not all these speaking Galileans, they say? Now, time and culture keep us from understanding that Galileans in the first century were not known to be the brightest bulbs on the porch. They were proverbially ignorant. They were considered uncivilized, unsophisticated. We would call them today rednecks, yahoos, or hillbillies. Certainly, they were voted most likely not to succeed in their high school class. If they had been Romans or Athenians, that would have been different. But Galileans, that's fascinating to me that they said the same thing about Jesus. When they found out that the teacher was from Galilee, was from Nazareth, you remember what Nathaniel said? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Man, talk about racial profiling. Jesus knew all about it. They were bewildered to the point that some actually mimicked them. Some actually mocked them they are tipsy, they're drunk. They've been drinking little grandpa's cough medicine. And I love Peter's response. These fellows are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only nine o'clock in the morning. Implication being, but if you'll come back this afternoon, (laughs) happy hour starts at five, it's five o'clock somewhere. And then Peter, using the scripture, interprets what's happening. He places Pentecost, this spiritual explosion in the context of prophecy. He says, this is what Joel talked about in fifth century BC when he said, in the days to come, I will pour out my spirit on all people and your boys and girls are going to preach and your youth group is going to see visions And your old folks, your Robert I. Moore class, are going to dream dreams. And even on my servants, I'm going to pour out my spirit, and you'll see signs and wonders. And listen to this line, and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter, taking Scripture, then begins to proclaim the gospel, and he points the crowd to Jesus. That's what the church does. The gospel is not about Jesus. The gospel is Jesus. It's God incarnate. Now, the most amazing th- thing to me about this passage is that it was Peter who preached the first gospel sermon. Boy, we didn't see that coming, did we? I mean, think about it. It was 50 days before that this fisherman couldn't even admit knowing Jesus in front of a servant girl at a campfire, and yet here he is proclaiming Jesus as Messiah and Lord in the same city where Jesus was nailed. What has gotten in to Peter? You already know. (laughs) The spirit of the living Christ has gotten into Peter. He has been with Jesus. And when faith gets personal, your witness goes viral. One of my favorite texts, scriptures is Acts 4.13. You remember that? I love this text. Peter and John were brought to the temple authorities, to the temple police, because they had been in the temple and they healed a lame man, a man lame from birth, in the name of Jesus, which was a no-no in the theology of the Sanhedrin. And so they bring them before the authorities, and here's what Acts 4.13 says. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that these guys are unschooled, ordinary Galileans, and they were amazed ecstasis. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. It's evident when you've been with Jesus, isn't it? And it's evident when we haven't been with Jesus. But when faith gets personal, the witness goes viral, and people get it. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And when you read the rest of the book of Acts, it confirms that. There's an Ethiopian eunuch. He would not have been allowed in the temple. Philip baptizes him. That's everyone. There's a religious persecutor from Tarsus who went to Damascus to bring back Christians chained, and he had an experience And he converted to Christ. That's everyone. There's a Roman centurion in Acts who has blood on his hands. And he convinces Simon Peter to baptize him. That's everyone. The gospel through the Spirit of God has gone global. Finally, the last thing is this I want you to notice briefly the response of some to Peter's preaching. Luke says they were cut to the heart. The Greek is diatrio. It means literally their hearts were sawn in two. They were so convicted by the love of Christ that it convicted them to the core. And they ran to Simon Peter and the others, and they said, what must we do? You know, it's interesting, not a one of them said, how should we feel? We put so much emphasis on feeling, but Luke puts it all on action. What are we supposed to do? And Peter tells them, repent, repent. That means do a U-turn. The word is metanoia. That means if you're going this way and you realize you're convicted by God, that you need to turn around, you turn around. I'm glad to tell you, in this fellowship, in this church, U turns are not only allowed, they are required. Because Christianity has no message for those who do not realize that we are sinners. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. And they did. <laughs> I mean, 3,000 of them did. They went swimming, baptized. And on that first Pentecost day, they went from a small church to a megachurch, from 120 to over 3,000. Don't look now, but I think there's another prophecy fulfilled in this text. It's Jeremiah 31, 33. I will make a new promise with my people in the coming days says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. Oh, that's Pentecost. When faith moves from here to here, you find your voice. You find your nerve. You find your faith. And all of a sudden, you stop stammering and start singing and everyone who calls upon the name will be saved one last word and I'm finished I'm going to officiate a wedding not too long from now off site for a couple that I've grown very fond of in fact I was talking to them recently I usually begin in premarital counseling by trying to talk them out of it but they seemed bent. And so we talked for a few minutes. We prayed. I asked the young man, why do you think she's the one for you? And he thought carefully for a moment, and he said, well, after I met her, I started brushing my teeth more often. (laughs) I thought, well, I've never heard that before, but I I think that's… I'll include that. I think that's a good thing. And then he said something else. He said, you know, after I'd known her for a little while, I quit hunting and fishing as much as I used to, and I noticed I comb my hair a lot more when she's near, and I put on a clean shirt, and my whole attire has improved. She laughed and said, that's true, I can vouch for him. And then I said, well, while we're at it, let me ask you the same question to the young lady. I said, what makes you think that he's the one for you? And you know what she said? She said, Because I loved him before he started brushing his teeth more. (laughs) I loved him before he gave up hunting and fishing, and before he combed his hair, and before he put on a clean shirt. And I thought to myself, Isn't it amazing what love can do? It's making a new man out of that boy. It occurs to me that he's exhibit A of what can happen when redemptive love gets personal. I'm I'm talking about when it's written on your heart. It's not just the feeling that changes. It's the conduct. It's the countenance. It's the clothing. It's the behavior. It's the habits. It's the actions. It's the life. Because once love gets personal, your witness goes viral and it becomes evident that you have been with Jesus. And that's my prayer for you on Pentecost. In the name of the Father and the Son. In the Holy Spirit, amen.